Heavenly Father, we read in your word that the heavens declare your glory, that the sky above proclaims your handiwork, that day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. But God, you have given us something even more as great as looking at the sky and looking at your creation is. You've given us something more. You've given us your word. You've given us your law. You've given us your testimony. And the psalmist writes that the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and it makes wise the simple. It is to be more desired than gold and even much fine gold. It's more desired to be than honey. God, would that be your word for us this morning? Would it be something, Lord, that revives our soul? Would it help make us people who are wise, who walk through a dark and broken world with wisdom and godliness? God, would it also make us uh, people who desire you more? In these words, God, would we desire you more than anything on this earth, more than even fine gold? And would you be sweet to us like honey? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read uh, Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9, if you have your Bibles. It's a little bit longer of a psalm. And if you've been with us, uh, we started out with an intro to Psalms. We did Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 3, and then we're moving to Psalm chapter 9. It's not because we're trying to pass over anything, but if you look at Psalm chapter 9, you would notice that a lot of those themes that are in Psalms 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 kind of reached the pinnacle in Psalm chapter 9. So Psalm chapter 9 you can think of is really the exclamation point of all the previous Psalms. And it's a Psalm of David like the other Psalms that we've been studying. And it begins with these words. This is the word of God. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk into the pit that they have made. In the net that they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. 
Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of God. Now, some of you uh, may be familiar with the name Epicurus. Epicurus was a Greek philosopher in the 3rd and the 4th century BC, so this is a while ago. And that name might not be familiar to others of you, but one of his thoughts is maybe the most well-known idea in all of the Western world. In fact, Epicurus is the earliest known person to formulate what's known as the problem of evil, or it's often known as the argument against God from evil, and it goes something like this. Epicurus wrote, Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not all-powerful. Is he able to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he is not all-good. Is he all-powerful, and all good, then why is there evil? Simply put, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-good, then why on earth is there evil existing in the world today? And even though philosophers are the ones who typically, you know, think about those kinds of questions, and they ask those kinds of questions, we know that that question is not just philosophical. In fact, uh, as I was Looking at that, this passage this week, and I was thinking about this question, I thought about a picture of my wife. It's a picture of my wife with uh, one of her cousins, but there's a backstory to this, uh, to this picture. Hannah's aunt and uncle had tried to conceive of, of a child. They had gone through multiple fertility treatments, but they were older, and they had got married later in life, so they had had some complications. Well, they finally had this pregnancy, they were finally rejoicing that they could have a child, and then they found out at 39 weeks that something was wrong with the pregnancy. She thought she was going into labor, so she rushed to the hospital, and the doctor said that there was no longer a heartbeat. The doctor said that she would give birth to a stillborn child. And so the picture that came to mind as I was thinking about this was a picture of Hannah, my wife, holding this stillborn child who never was even named, uh, a child who lost an innocent life. So if God is all-powerful, if God is perfectly good, then why the loss of this innocent child? It makes me think of my other friend, too. Her name is Lauren Adams. She was a really good friend of ours when we lived in Nashville, and uh, we were in small group with her almost uh, our entire time when we lived in Nashville. And she was a little bit younger than Hannah and I, so she saw us have kids, and she wanted kids of her own. And we have twins, so when she had uh, heard the news that her and her husband had conceived twins, we were the first people that she called. And then at 10 weeks, when they went in for one of their first ultrasounds, the doctor had the news that there was not one heartbeat and there wasn't a second heartbeat, that she had lost both children. God, if you are all-powerful, if you are able then why miscarriage? If you are perfectly good and willing, then why stillborn pregnancies? Why does evil exist? And now we've been in the Psalms for about a month now, and we've been studying really just book one of the Psalms. Book one is the first 41 poems in these first 41 books in the book of Psalms. And 39 of them, we're told, are written by David. David, who is this ancient king of Israel, he was living around the year 1000 BC. And David, just as well as anybody else, just as well as us, knew the problem of evil profoundly. In fact, David himself lost a child. 
Remember last week when we were looking at Psalm 3, we saw that David had, had an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. But one detail that we left out of that story is that following the pregnancy of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, by David, the narrator tells us that the child that Bathsheba conceived, whose name, by the way, was never mentioned as well, that child became sick. And so David's response was he fasted, David prayed, David sought the all-powerful, perfectly good God, the God who had raised him up to be king over Israel, but just seven days after holding his child for the first time after birth, David had to bury his newborn son. David also knew the problem of evil on a national scale as well. We're told that in maybe one of the most tragic instances of Scripture, David, in his twilight years of being king of Israel, he witnessed this severe plague that ravaged the entire land of Israel. And over the course of three days, this severe plague took the lives of 70,000 people in just three days. 70,000 people lost their lives. 70,000 families lost a father or a sister or a daughter or a brother or a mother. And David also knew the problem of evil When foreign nations would come against him, they would raid the land of Israel and take the lives of innocent people who lived on the outskirts of the land of Israel. These people would burn down cities. They would rob them of possessions. They would violate their wives and their children. So David, just as well as anyone else, knows our story. He knows the problem of evil. David knew, not just intellectually, but also experientially, what it meant to lose a child to experience evil, to look it squarely in the face. And almost all commentators are agreed that David in Psalms 9 and 10, which were originally one psalm, almost all are agreed that this psalm is written as David is looking down a fresh encounter with evil. A present injustice has taken root And David starts by crying out to the Lord. So that's why in the heart of this psalm, which was originally one, this is Psalm 10, verse 1, David cries, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why, O Lord, if you are all-powerful, if you could step in, do you stand far away? Why, O God, if you are all-good... If you could show your goodness, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And we know that in this circumstance, David is almost certainly facing, remember he's the king of Israel. And as king of Israel, he's facing most likely an evil of gross injustice. And you can see that if you look at Psalm 9, beginning in verse 12. In verse 12, we see that David says, God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And then you can see in verse 18, if you scan down just a little bit further, we see that there, that David says, the needy will not be forgotten, the poor have hope. And this continues into Psalm 10. David writes about the innocent, the helpless, the oppressed, the fatherless, all of whom are victims of some social injustice and gross evil. So it's in the face of this present encounter with social injustice That David wrestles again with this problem of evil. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? If indeed you are all-powerful and perfectly good, then why evil? And just to start looking at Psalm 9, it's really interesting to notice where David begins in this wrestling 
with this present injustice and this present evil. You noticed it in verse 1. It starts out as a praise to God. That's David's default response, if you will. In the face of present evil, he gives God thanksgiving. He gives God praise. So he writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So see, witnessing evil, witnessing injustice, David begins with a default of worshiping God, of praising God, of thanking God. And notice, it's not with trite slogans either, right? He doesn't begin, well, everything happens for a reason, God. It doesn't begin with, God won't give you more than you can bear. I know that about you, God. Instead, David praises, adores, and gives thanks to God for a specific reason. Did you notice that? He says, thank you, God, and he begins by recounting God's past wonderful deeds. And when he does that, when David recounts God's past actions, he looks back at when God has shown up for him in the past. And this common theme arises. Look at verse 3. David says, when I recount your wonderful deeds, I see this. My enemies turn back. Verse 3. They stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. What David is saying is when I look back at these past deeds, what I see is God enthroned as a king acting on my behalf, acting for my cause. Now, if you're anything like me, you think of a king and you typically think of like King Henry VIII. You think of kind of a plump and pale, delicate man who has never really worked a day in his life. He spends his day in leisure and self-indulgent luxury. He wears soft and extravagant clothing. And that's not really the picture that David has of a king. He's not thinking King Henry VIII. Instead, he's thinking of a king in the ancient world. And a king in the ancient world, any king that was worth his salt, by the way, a king in the ancient world possessed all power in his throne. And what that means is that he was the head of military power, meaning a king was a general, he was a commander, he was a warrior who led men into war and went into war himself. He was also the head of all judicial power, meaning he was the supreme authority in all legal matters. They were judges Kings were judges who were expected to establish judgment and justice in their kingdom. They were also the head of political power, meaning they were kings who were accountable to every single person who fell within their dominion, and they were expected to care and provide for all the people who were in their kingdom. And so when David begins to look back into the past, he sees God acting like that kind of king on his behalf. He sees God taking up his cause and acting as a warrior, a judge, and a righteous king. That is the common theme that he sees when God acts for him in the past. So that's why in verse 3 when he says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. What David is saying is, God, when I look back into the past, I see you acting as a mighty warrior on my behalf. You fight for me. You go out into battle for me. And did you notice, usually when people are faced with a king or they're faced with an army and they turn back and they retreat, that's a way for them to preserve their life. But notice what David says. David says, when my enemies turn back, 
when they retreat, they still stumble and they still perish before your, your, before your presence. They stumble and die. That is how strong and mighty this God as warrior is. And then in verse 4, David also says, For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. That's another common theme that David sees. He says, God, you are a righteous judge. You have sat on a throne of judgment. You have taken up my cause and you have given good and righteous judgments for me in the past. Even when people come after me with slanderous accusations, even when people come at me unjustly. And for those of you who know the story of David, you don't really have to go very far to know David was the target of gross injustice time and time again. I'll just recount one instance. So David used to be a shepherd boy in a small town in Bethlehem outside outside of Judah. And he was the youngest son of Jesse, who was a shepherd in that region. And he was chosen by King Saul, the king of Israel at the time, to be a servant for Saul. And he would play music for Saul because he was tempted by an evil spirit and tormented by this evil spirit. Then David was also King Saul's armor bearer. He would serve him during times of war. He would remain faithful to him as well. He fought for King Saul against Goliath the Gittite. You know the story, David and Goliath. And he uh, gave really the first major victory over the Philistines for Saul. The Bible also says that David went out to fight for the king. He was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over all his men of war. So you see here, David is this faithful servant of King Saul. But... Saul, because he's jealous of David's rising fame, because he's a better warrior than he is, and because he's afraid that Israel is going to be taken captive by David and people are going to start following him as king, Saul tries to murder David. He tries to pin him to a wall with a spear. He chases him into the wilderness and he corners him into this cave. And there's this one instance, it's actually kind of humorous. David gets cornered into a cave and Saul doesn't know that he's in there. So Saul decides... Well, it's hot, it's the middle of the day, I'm going to go relieve myself in this cave, meaning he's going to do number one or number two. And so what he does is he takes off his robe, sets it aside. David is in the cave, though, with his men. And as Saul is relieving himself, David's men say, go over and kill Saul. This is the time that God's given you. You can finally defeat injustice right here. But David says, no, I will never do that. I'm not going to put my hand against the Lord's anointed, not against God's king. So David decides instead, he cuts the corner off of Saul's garment that he set aside, and he holds on to it. And as Saul leaves doing his business, David screams out to Saul, saying, Why do you listen to the words of men, Saul, who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day's your eyes have seen how the Lord... Gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And then all that Saul can really say in response to this is, David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. So you see, David looks back to the past. And this common theme emerges that God has acted in these wonderful deeds. God as a warrior, as a judge and a king, always took up David's cause. He always brought him justice and God made it clear, David is righteous, his enemies act in injustice and evil. Saul, in fact, we hear, 
was ultimately going to die a shameful death, and God ultimately defeated David's enemies. And David sees that as a sign that those who try to thwart God's justice as king, they stumble and perish. God, the great king, eradicates David's enemies. So then, return to Psalm 9, because there, David, in the face of this new and present injustice, this fresh encounter with evil, David's default response is to worship and praise and thank God for his mighty, wondrous past deeds that God has always taken up for him. God has never failed to take up David's cause in the past. And I want you to think with me here really quick. Isn't it interesting how David kind of reasons from evil? Think of how Epicurus reasoned from evil, right? He said, there's evil in the world, which means God must not be good and God must not be all-powerful. Other people have reasoned this way. I, I think of one man, his name was Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer is the writer for Skeptic Magazine. He's actually the chief editor of Skeptic Magazine. When Shermer was uh, a grad student, he and one of his friends were driving in a van. The van, in the middle of the night, he was driving up Pacific Coast Highway in California. The van went off the side of the road, tumbled, and his friend, who was in the passenger seat, broke her back. And as she was in the hospital, Shermer, who was a Christian at the time, said he cried out to God, he prayed to God, but no healing ever came. So in a later interview, Shermer said, quote, I wanted to believe if there was a God who was powerful and loving, if there was any justice at all anywhere in the universe, then surely he'd help this precious, caring, compassionate young woman, but nothing happened. It was then that Sherman reasoned, there probably is no God. Stuff just happens. This is the nature of evil. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, why not? It's the second law of thermodynamics. That's the way that the world is. That's how we can be tempted to reason in the face of evil, in the face of injustice. We can be tempted to reason our present circumstances back to God. We face evil, and sometimes, not unjustly, we cry out to God, God, where are you? You must, you must not be there. And, and we use our present circumstances and read that back onto God. But notice David's response, how different that is and how instructive that is for us. David's de default response is to look back. He looks back, and David's default response is to recount the wonderful ways that God has delivered him in the past, the ways that God has acted justly in the past, the way that God has always taken up his cause as king in the past, and he reasons from God's actions in the past to his present circumstances. You see the way that David logic, David's logic works and the way that he reasons through evil, how different it is from the way that we do that. And again, it's instructive because we can kind of put God in an impossible position when we think through these things. When evil seems to take a foothold in our life, we use that as evidence that God must not be good or that God might not be all-powerful. But on the flip side, when good things happen to us, we often think, well, I deserve that. Or we often think, oh, that's just coincidence. Do you see what kind of impossible situation that is for God? Right? When things go wrong, 
God is unjust or doesn't exist. When things go right, it's just a coincidence or it's our good doing. So no matter what happens, no matter the scenario, God is to blame when things go wrong and he receives no credit when things go wrong. Friends, that's a hard place to be in. That is the definition of a rock and a hard place. But David's default logic is flipped here. David instead reasons from who God has been into the past into his present circumstances, and David begins by recounting all the wonderful deeds God has done for him, and he faces his present with those in mind. And then you notice in verse 5, David's praise begins to shift. So if you look again at verse 5, you realize that David goes from past, and all of a sudden he starts talking about something that's going future. In the past, God acted as king, he sat on his throne, he gave righteous judgment, and now he goes to the future when God will act as judge. And he says, verse 5, you have rebuked the nations, you have made the wicked perish, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins, their cities you rooted out, the very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. See, David praises God not only for his wonderful deeds of judgment in the past, personally toward David, he then begins to reason and look forward and praise God for a future judgment, which he says will encompass the entire world, all nations, all people, and it will be an eternal judgment with eternal consequences. And now, Jesus spoke about this same kind of judgment. Jesus, in one of the last real sermons or teachings that he gave said that in the last day he would return, and he put it in these terms. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I just want to point out, by the way, that as we decided to preach through the Psalms this summer, Dwayne picked all the happy Psalms. I have nothing else to say. <laughs> but Psalm 9, that same judgment that David speaks about, it's that same judgment that Jesus speaks about. It's an eternal judgment where names will be blotted out eternally, where people will be forgotten forever, where God will punish his enemies with eternal righteousness. And by the way, notice this song versus any song that you hear today on Christian radio. This is not exactly a top 40 Christian hit, right? We think of praising God and thanking God, and we want to praise God with his attributes of love and his attributes of kindness and his great work of creation, all of which are praiseworthy, but 
noticeably absent from a lot of those songs is any mention of God's judgment or his righteousness or his eternal enthronement as king over all things. You have to search long and hard to find any song written within the last five decades that would praise God for his future judgment as king. And understandably so, because it makes us uneasy. In fact, I remember this conversation I had with a friend. Uh, it was my friend in, at Vanderbilt when I was in grad school. And we were in a Bible class together. And after we went and started talking, and I was hearing a little bit more of his story and what it is that he believed. And we were talking about God's judgment. And he said directly, I do not think that God would ever do something like that. And some of us, I know some of us feel that same way this morning. We want to ask, do you expect me to believe that God could ever be a king who would met out eternal judgment? Much less do you expect me to praise God for doing so? And I would respond simply by asking, shouldn't someone do something about evil and injustice in the world? Shouldn't somebody do that? There's been a civil war in Yemen for eight years, and the Associated Press about a year and a half ago, they did an, a detailed analysis of this huge problem that was going on in Yemen. They found that for nearly two years, that while the UN, the US, and Saudi Arabia had teamed up to pour in about $4 billion of aid into Yemen, including food, shelter, and medical supplies, they found that more than half of the population was still not getting enough to eat. In fact, 15.9 million of Yemen's 29 million people were nearly starving to death. And the Associated Press, in this detailed analysis, discovered that it was actually the Western-backed military presence in Yemen fighting for the very people who were bringing in the aid. They were looting the aid for themselves, holding it off to the side and selling it at a profit. The World Food Program Director for the UN, David Beasley, he said, these instances of fraud amount to stealing food out of the mouths of hungry Yemeni children. Let me ask you, shouldn't somebody do something about that? Three months ago, Russian forces, on their own side of the conflict, started launching rockets into a maternity ward in Mariupol, Ukraine, killing and injuring hundreds of women and children. Shouldn't somebody do something about that? Just this past month, an armed white gunman in body armor killed tw 10 black shoppers and workers at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, all of which was motivated by a racist theory that said, all people that are not white are inferior races and non-white ethnicities are somehow less than white ethnicities. And what's going on is all of this immigration and all of these non-white people coming into the United States is an instance of the replacement of European civilization and heritage. Let me ask you again, shouldn't somebody do something about that? Or what about this number, 63,459,781 is the number of children who have been aborted in the United States alone, all under the name of bodily choice and reproductive justice. Shouldn't somebody do something about that? And I know we're tempted to think, because we hear this stuff all the time, we're very tempted to think, well, those are just misguided people. No friends. All of those statistics, all of those instances, while there are people who are misguided, do not, do not commit this mistake of saying that they are not evil. 
those things and those instances in themselves are evil. That doesn't mean people cannot have forgiveness for uh, partaking in them. It doesn't mean that people are too far from the grace of God. But what it does mean is that evil has taken root in hearts, in people's lives. And David rejoices in the fact that God will do something about evil in the future. David knows God, just as he acted as king and judge for David personally in the past, he will in the future do something about evil. He will. And again, we often put God in an impossible position. We cry out against evil and injustice saying, God, why don't you do something about that? But then when God says, I will come as judge, I will eternally judge, we say, God, you cannot do that. Again, that is a rock and a hard place. We put God in an impossible position. Maybe the best way to put it is, you know, we often want justice, but we do not want a judge. We want the world to be made right, but we don't want a righteous king who can make it right. In some, we want the kingdom of God without the king. Uh, I was told this week that a student at Denver Seminary, uh, he was from a country in Africa. Uh, the person who told me this story couldn't remember where he was from, but they were in a New Testament class and they were reading through Second Thessalonians, which is a book that recounts a lot of these themes of God's judgment and God's punishment of evil. And many of the students were wrestling through this, but this one student who was from Africa said, no, we love this book. We love this book because we need a God. We, we need a God who will bring justice. We need a God who will make the world right because we realize we can't do it. See, they needed a God who would do something. They knew you cannot have the kingdom of God without the warrior judge and righteous king of heaven. And David in Psalm 9 gives a final summary of God's wonderful future judgment as king. He says, beginning in verse 15, Describing what this will look like, he says, The nations have sunk into the pit that they have made, into the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol. All the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Again, you still may think, hey, in the present, right now, I cannot praise God for this idea of his future eternal judgment, but start here. Like David, like David, look back to the past and look back to another time when God took up the cause of his people, when he came and acted as judge on our behalf. Start by looking back, we can do this just like David, and look back to Jesus. Because do you realize that is exactly what we're doing when we praise Jesus? Jesus, in his death on the cross 2,000 years ago, stood underneath the judgment of God. He took up the cause of his people, and Jesus received the full penalty of God's judgment for our sins in his sacrifice. So the same God, Jesus who brings the judgment in the future is also the God that took that judgment himself. That's why David can write, verse 9, David singing about this future king, he can say, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name 
put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. David here describes Jesus not only as the judge who sits enthroned, but as the stronghold who stepped into history to protect those who trust in him. As one author put it, King Jesus is the judge who brings justice on the sinner. King Jesus is the savior who shelters the sinner from his judgment. And maybe one of the reasons we balk at the idea of God's justice is that in our heart of hearts, we know that actually we deserve it. David, when he experienced evil, when David experienced evil, he also realized he was a perpetrator of evil. He realized that oftentimes injustice was not something that he was a victim of, but something that he deserved. And when we search ourselves, while we are often the victims of evil, we're often the victims of injustice, we also realize that we, just like David, are also perpetrators of evil. We also realize we are perpetrators of injustice. That's why we need King Jesus, the king who brings judgment on the sinner and the savior who shelters the sinner from his judgment. We need King Jesus, the savior, who will never forsake those who seek him, who will never, never forsake those who put their trust in him. See, that's the problem with the problem of evil, is that it's missing Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who shelters sinners from his own judgment, from his almighty power. He takes evil and injustice into himself. On the cross, King Jesus, we see he is all-powerful. He can destroy evil. And in the punishment of his son, God showed that he will judge sin, evil, and justice, either in his son for those who take refuge in him, or eternally on those who don't want that refuge. On the cross, King Jesus, we see that, that he is all good, that through his sacrificial death, he is a stronghold for those who trust in him. He is even willing to forgive the greatest sinner there is so that they can avoid his judgment. And God on the cross himself, like Hannah's aunt and uncle, like my friend Lauren, God himself lost a child. God himself experienced evil. God himself on the cross gave up his own son over to evil to be a sacrifice for the evil that we commit. While David suffered for the wrongs he committed, while we sometimes suffer for the wrong we commit, God suffers for the wrongs of all those who put their trust in him. That's the king we need. There's this... uh, kind of parabolic story. It's the story of a king over a tribe. It's this ancient tribe. And they notice that there is this string of thefts that have happened in the tribe. And so the king says, we're going to find the person that is stealing all these goods and we're going to bring them to justice. And so a couple days later, the perpetrator is found. The person who's stealing the goods is found and he's dragged into the courtroom. And before the judge sees his face, he says, Whoever is going to be charged for these crimes is going to be flogged within an inch of his life. And it just so happens that the person who was the perpetrator, the the thief that was in the tribe, was the king's son. And so the king said, justice has to be rendered. So he tied the son to the tree so that 
His back would be laid bare so that he could receive the flogging to be brought within an inch of his life. But before the justice was taken out, before the flogging began, the dad came and wrapped his arms around the son of his back and said, assume the flogging. And he took the flogging for his own son, for his precious child. Friends, it's that image of a king that is worthy of praise and thanksgiving. That is the image of King Jesus, who is not only the coming judge who brings justice on the sinner, but he is the Savior who shelters the sinner from his own judgment. And it's the king that we need. And it's that image that is in David's mind of that king that he makes this final appeal in verse 19. David cries out to God, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. See what David is saying here. He finishes this song with this plea to God, this plea and appeal. God, bring your justice. Arise, God. Bring it to defeat evil finally and fully. Bring the future judgment into the present. Into the present. God, bring not just the kingdom, but come and reign as king. Come be the king you have always been. King Jesus, the one who is judge and brings judgment on the sinner, on evil, but also King Jesus, the Savior, who shelters evil sinners from his very judgment. And in a lot of ways, This table actually represents that very thing. Jesus, we're told, on the night he was betrayed, he gathered with all of his disciples and he instructed them, letting them know that this bread represented his body, that this cup filled with wine represented his blood of the new covenant. And what Jesus said is that as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his death in the past until he comes again as future king to judge the living and the dead. And so Jesus took the bread on the night he was betrayed and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying to them, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in like manner, after Jesus and his disciples had finished eating, he took the cup and he reminded them, This is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the remission of all your sins. Jesus poured out his life, he poured out his blood so that we could be forgiven. And again, he said, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes to reign as king over all. 